Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the other half. Episode 2.22, Ella, Hesse's Helen. So far in this second half of season two of The Other Half that looks at the granddaughters of Queen Victoria, we've looked at two women who became queens of nations at the periphery of World War I. The next two women that we'll be looking at were in a nation at the very centre of it. No country was more profoundly changed by World War I than Russia. It went from being the last remaining true absolute autocracy in Europe to being its first communist nation. It went from being a respected and feared country to a worldwide pariah, from one of the most backward political systems to the most modern. The story of the Russian Revolution and the fall of the Romanovs is one of the most studied in history. Along with the French Revolution, it has gone down as the most important and significant in the Western canon. It involves towering figures of history, Marx and Bakunin, Lenin and Trotsky, Kerensky and Kamenev, to name only a few. But that isn't really our story over the next few weeks. And those names won't come up all that much. A few key players in the story of the revolution will, though. That of the Romanovs. That of Rasputin. But our story is centred around two Hessian princesses and the role that they played in the drama. Two daughters of probably my favourite daughter of Queen Victoria, Grand Duchess Alice of Hesse and Byrhine, Elizabeth, better known as Ella, and Alexandra, better known as Alex. I'm going to warn you right now, neither of these stories have a happy ending. Both these women married men with 
to put it mildly, a questionable view on the world, and did little to arrest Russia's slide to disaster and revolution. And yet both are fascinating and important. They embodied the legacies of their mother and grandmother in everything that they did. And ultimately, they shaped and were passengers in one of the biggest stories in world history. As you may expect, Ella and Alex's stories intersected over the years, but we will be keeping to our normal style, examining each in turn. This will necessitate a little repetition, for which I hope you will forgive me. Those of you who are with me in the old Queens of England days, and the long slog through the Wars of the Roses, will be well familiar with this problem. I've been looking forward to covering these women ever since I started this show. Indeed, it's not an exaggeration to say that they are part of the reason why I wanted to do this series and the podcast as a whole to start with. So yeah, two enthralling stories to come, and I hope that you'll enjoy them. Of course, we actually started their stories weeks ago when we looked at the life of their mother Alice. We'll be picking up the story of Ella and Alex where we last left them. So if you need a refresher, I'd recommend looking back at that series. And although this intro is already super long, I hope you'll indulge me with one final plug for my Just Giving page for Ride London. It was a long, old slog of a day, and a week on I'm still not sure if my cars will ever be the same again. But the other half and I made it all 100 miles, up and down every hill and managing to avoid the truly astonishing number of crashes... I'd like to thank Julia, Sue, Nancy and Hazel, who have donated so far. Your generosity is really appreciated. The Just Giving page is open for a little while longer, so if you'd like to donate as well, then you can find a link in the show notes. Okay, now we're ready to get started. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Elizabeth Alexandra Louise Alice was born on the 1st of November 1864. Elizabeth is a rather unusual name for Victorian princesses of her generation, but it was carefully chosen. Having named her first daughter Victoria, Alice named her second daughter for two famous namesakes associated with her husband's family. The first was Saint Elizabeth of Hungary, a highly venerated Franciscan saint and a founder of the Hessian dynasty. She was particularly well known for her care of the sick and generosity to the poor, something of course for which Alice was also famed. The other Elizabeth was her husband's mother, Elizabeth of Prussia. With her other names, the baby princess was named for her aunt, the Princess of Wales, and both her parents. Like most Victorian princesses though, she mostly went with her pet name, Ella. She was the second child of Alice and Louise, and there was an element of disappointment at her birth, as they had both wanted a son. She was also a bit of a monster baby, 23 and a half inches tall, and was nicknamed Fat Baby. Unusually for her time, she was actually nursed by her mother Alice, 
something that absolutely outraged Queen Victoria. Her mother was keen to ensure that her daughters were imbued with the same concern for the poor and the sick as she, and Ella of all her children seems to have really taken this to heart. She accompanied her mother on all her visits to hospitals and soup kitchens, and engaged fully in her mother's worldview. She loved visiting the Alice Hospital in Darmstadt, talking to the patients and arranging flowers in their rooms. The household in which Ella grew up was, relatively speaking, rather modest. Alice was fonder of telling her daughters to give their toys to the poor rather than spoiling them, and was deeply involved in their education, both intellectual and moral, as well as physical. Ella's most famous governess was a woman delightfully named Margaret Hardcastle Jackson, a God-fearing Protestant, yet also free-thinking and modern in her methods, the perfect woman to educate Alice's children. Ella's day would start with two hours of lessons before breakfast, which frankly seems barbaric, followed by exercise of some description, then more lessons, followed by a late lunch with her parents, which was always hearty, simple and nutritious. No sweets for Alice's kids. The afternoons were for outdoor play, no matter what the weather, often with their friends, followed by tea and bed. With this comprehensive education, Ella learned how to read in English, German and French, became an accomplished painter, much like her mother and grandmother, and took a great interest in theology. She was as adept at academic subjects as she was also at more traditionally feminine pursuits. For example, she was praised for her contralto voice, but she was equally as interested in reading the letters of her favourite composers, such as Mendelssohn and Mozart. Her love of reading was voracious, and she took in everything from Shakespeare and Jane Austen to trashy ghost stories and Every Girl's Annual. As she grew up, she quickly gained the charm and beauty for which she would become famous. Tall, slender and pale-skinned, she was renowned as one of the most beautiful princesses in Europe, and this quickly attracted the attention of suitors. Her cousin Marie was as infatuated as any, writing that, quote, one could never take one's eyes off her, and that she was, quote, a marvellous revelation, exquisite beyond words, it almost brought tears to your eyes. Now, an issue that Ella would find throughout her life is that she constantly attracted the attention of, let's just say, some unsavoury men. And the least savoury of them all was her first suitor, Crown Prince Wilhelm of Prussia. The soon-to-be Kaiser Bill was 16 at the time, and fell head over heels in love with his 11-year-old cousin, and wrote this rather creepy letter to his mother, Vicky. Quote, Ella, who is my special pet, is very much grown and is exceedingly beautiful. In fact, she is the most beautiful girl I ever saw. She and I, we both love each other warmly. I think that, if God grants that I may live till then, I shall make her my bride. Now, neither Vicky nor Alice were particularly keen on this match. Both were very much aware of the haemophilia that was infecting the royal bloodline, and were not at all thrilled about the idea of a first cousin marriage, especially for the heir to the German throne. One also imagines that Alice, who well knew what a piece of work her nephew was, would have wanted Ella to steer well clear on those grounds as well. 
This did not stop Wilhelm from pursuing Ella over the next few years, though. Indeed, while he was at university at Bonn, he frequently skived off studying to go hang out in the Darmstadt court with his cousins, where he tried to seduce Ella by, frankly, being a bit of a pompous doofus. He would demand that they play tennis or go rowing and riding with him, but quickly abandon it in favour of some other activity with no thought at all to what Ella might want to do. He was also one to abruptly stop whatever game they may have been playing together and order her to listen to him reading from the Bible. Shockingly, this ungentlemanly seduction failed to win Ella's affections, and eventually Wilhelm turned his quote-unquote charms elsewhere. Then there was this 17-year-old Lord Charles Montague, who fell in love with Ella during a spirited childhood set of war games, but he too was unable to secure a promise. Ella would have many more men chasing after her hand in marriage, but they would have to take a back seat, as tragedy befell the Hessian royal family in 1878. If you recall, nearly the whole family gradually fell ill with diphtheria. One by one they contracted the infection, starting with Ella's elder sister Victoria, with it then spreading to Alex, May and Irene, before moving to Ernest and Grand Duke Louis. Indeed, Ella was the only one to escape it, and was moved out of the family residence for her own safety. She would spend a month away from her family, and was kept in the dark of the true horror of what was to come. First, her little sister May, all of four years old, succumbed to diphtheria and died. Then her mother, who had been the only one left in the new palace who was disease-free, also contracted it, possibly after giving her deceased daughter a goodbye kiss. When Ella heard about her mother's illness, she was frantic with worry and desperate to do something to help. Not being able to be by her side, she turned to artistic skills, decorating a photograph frame for her as a get-well-soon gift. She agonised over it, annoyed, because in her words, quote, Frustratingly, it is not pretty. Nonetheless, she sent it to her mother with a note, written in large lettered handwriting. She signed it, quote, I write it so bigly so that you can read it easier as you are in bed. Your loving child, Ella. Of course, as we know, her mother would not get better. And tragically, she died on the 14th of December, 1878, at the age of just 35. Ella was finally reunited with her surviving family the next day. She wrote to her grandmother, Queen Victoria, that no one seemed to know quite what to say. Quote, Poor Papa looked dreadfully miserable. It seems like a horrible dream, would that it were. Dearest Grandmama, I have no words to express what I feel for you and for Papa. May God help us all to be a comfort to you both. That, to me, is an astonishingly lucid and mature letter for a grief-stricken 14-year-old to send shortly after the death of her beloved mother and little sister. Life in Darmstadt after the death of Alice was never the same. She had been the heart of the family, its very soul. Losing their mother left a great chasm in the heart of every one of her children, one that would deeply affect each of them for the rest of their lives. (laughs) 
As we will see when we look at the life of her sister Alex, the younger Hessian children had the rest of their childhood supervised by their elder sisters, Victoria and Ella, who really stepped up to the plate after their mother died. They also hosted a great company of visitors and well-wishers. These included their aunts, uncles and cousins from the UK, as well as the requisite companies of suitors for Ella's hand, who continued to come thick and fast. One is rather minded the story of Helen of Troy, and I wonder if her father had found someone like Odysseus to choose a husband for her, then maybe her life would have been a lot easier. Then again, things didn't exactly work out all that well for Helen and Menelaus. I won't bore you with the cavalcade of names, but we know at least three men made a formal offer of marriage to Ella while she was still a young teenager, and there may well have been more. I will instead introduce the man who, spoiler alert, will win her hand in marriage, Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich. You may remember from the series on Alice that the Hessian court was always lousy with Romanovs. The Tsarina of Russia at that time was Maria of Hesse, Ella's great-aunt, and she came to visit every year, always accompanied by a great compliment of her Russian relations. Alice found them all incredibly trying, lamenting the mess they had made and their lack of manners. Among the Romanov visitors were Marie's children, the second youngest of whom was Sergei. He had known Ella since birth, he was around seven years older than she, and they had always gotten on well. Indeed, Ella was unusual amongst Alice's children in actually rather liking their Russian relations. Princess Victoria described Sergei and his younger brother Paul as being, quote, very tall and lazy and never seemed to know how to amuse themselves. They talk very little and don't seem to know what to say, so that after we have talked about the weather and the roads, they are generally silent or talk amongst themselves. She also states that they were frequently rude and had odd manners and said odd things. Sergei and his brother Paul visited Darmstadt in the autumn following the death of Alice, and it's clear from Ella's diary that he made a very favourable impression on her. They returned every year, but the most notable time was in 1881, now as the brothers of the new Tsar Alexander III, as their father, Alexander II, had been killed in a terrorist attack earlier that year. We'll talk more about that in a future episode. Both Ella and Sergei had recently visited Italy, and found much to talk about in what they had seen, heard, and tasted. It's also fair to say that their having both lost a parent in such proximity helped to create a bond between them. It was quite clear, following this visit, that Sergei was planning on making Ella an offer of marriage. Now this presented a number of challenges. Alice and Louis had both agreed that they would allow their children to marry for love, but Louis had concerns that, as she was still a teenager, Ella was too young to marry. Equally, Ella was not entirely sure about Sergei. They had a good relationship, sure, but her feelings for him were not yet deep enough to commit to marriage. Then there was the problem that there were other matches in the offing that were also tempting for Ella, the most notable of which was Prince Frederick of Baden. Young Fritz was the heir to the Grand Duchy of Baden in the southwest of the German Empire. He had two major ticks in his box as far as Ella's family were concerned. The first was that his mother was German royalty. 
Louise was the daughter of Emperor Wilhelm I, and therefore Vicky's husband's sister. This gave him potentially powerful connections, especially as Empress Augusta of Germany was firmly in Fritz's court. She wasn't the only empress backing him either, as Queen Victoria herself was most definitely in Team Fritz. The main reason, though, why Queen Victoria favoured him is quite simply because he wasn't Russian. Now, we've talked a bit about the Anglo-Russian rivalry in the 19th century already in this series, but here's a refresher. Russia had been an expansionist empire ever since the accession of the Romanov dynasty in the 17th century, increasing in size by an average of 20,000 square miles per year. To put that in context, there's the equivalent of adding a Croatia every year, or two Marylands, or Lake Michigan, or half of South Korea. Every year. For centuries. That all meant that by the late 19th century, Russia had an empire that stretched from the German border in the west to the Bering Strait in the east. From the Arctic Ocean in the north to the Hindu Kush in the south. It was massive. For a century or so, one of the nations that Russia had been continually picking on was the so-called sick man of Europe, the Ottoman Empire. The Romanovs saw gobbling up their Asian possessions, including the city of Constantinople, as a key priority. But this would shatter the delicate balance of power so beloved by the great powers of Europe. Most importantly for the British, it would threaten their lines of communication to their vital Indian colony, the jewel of their empire. This became known as the Eastern Question. This is how the UK and France ended up at war with Russia in the Crimea in the 1850s, and although the Russian defeat slowed their ambitions in the region, by the 1870s they were back and made another move against the Ottomans. They won a brief war, but British diplomacy forced them to give up most of their conquered territories. Tsar Alexander II, who in his youth had courted Queen Victoria, now called her that, quote, "'Old madwoman, the Queen,' That tramp. But this was not the only theatre of conflict between the UK and Russia, as they were also butting heads against each other in Central Asia. In the deserts and mountain ranges of modern Afghanistan and some of its neighbours, armies and spies fought it out in what has become known to history as the Great Game. Again, the great British worry was that the massive Russian army might one day threaten India, and they would go to any means to protect their jewel. So, there were important geopolitical reasons why Victoria was not all that keen on Russia. But that wasn't the only reason she didn't want Ella marrying Sergei. Because she also hated their political system. Remember that she and her husband Albert yearned for a Europe united by a shared system of liberal democracy, dominated by constitutional limited monarchies. If they thought that Prussia was a backward monarchy and autocratic... It had nothing on the Romanovs. Again, we'll talk more about this in a later episode. But the Russian Tsars were rulers unlike any other in Europe. They didn't just control every aspect of life in their empire. They were seen as ordained by God and as their representative on earth. They were wealthy on a scale unheard of in any other monarchy, and yet ruled over a people more poor and unrepresented than any outside the Middle Ages. That would be bad enough if it was at least working, but Romanov authority was already fraying at the edges. 
Alexander II had had numerous attempts on his life before his eventual assassination and had proclaimed a war on terror. Sound familiar? That led to a suppression of what limited civil rights were still left and a brutal hunting down and execution of anyone seen as a threat. Yet the Romanovs still lived in an understandable fear of an assassination and so lived in the most gilded of cages, fearing to experience the outside world and so now living completely astride from it. Victoria knew well what life was like for Romanov women. Her daughter-in-law, Alexandra, the Princess of Wales, was the sister of the new Russian Tsarina, and her own son, Alfred, had, against her wishes, married the youngest daughter of Alexander II. She had no desire at all for any more members of her family to become entangled in the Romanov web, and made no secret of it to the Hessian princesses. She wrote to Princess Victoria, quote, Russia, I could not wish for any of you, and dear Mamma always said she would never hear of it. And while the Queen could be incredibly manipulative when she wanted, she wasn't wrong about that. This was why she was so insistent on Fritz of Baden's suit. She enlisted Princess Victoria's help in keeping tabs on Ella, but the sisterly code of silence more or less held strong. The princess reported in January 1883, quote, You ask me about Ella and Fritz of Baden. He was here the other day, but said nothing according to Papa's wish. Ella and I never talk about those sorts of things, but she seems neither to like or dislike Fritz in any way. That is a lot of spin if ever I heard it. Ella and Victoria were very close and would definitely have shared their feelings on this German suitor. Victoria's non-committal answer to her grandmother here is clearly designed to string her along while Ella made her mind up for herself. Things finally came to a head at the silver wedding anniversary of her aunt and uncle, Vicky and Fritz. God save me from all these Victorias and Fritzes. The whole family was there, and so Fritz of Baden saw this as a golden opportunity to propose marriage to Ella. She turned him down earning a furious rebuke from the Empress of Germany, and Queen Victoria was no less upset, exclaiming and writing, quote, How very unfortunate it is of Ella to refuse good Fritz of Baden, so good and steady, with such a safe, happy position, and, the next bit is in all caps, for a Russian. Her fears were confirmed two months later, when Sergei finally proposed to Ella, and she said yes. Now, Queen Victoria was not someone who would accept a defeat without a fight. She was determined to, quote-unquote, save her granddaughter from the clutches of the Russian bear, and so invited Ella to Balmoral that summer to convince her to change her mind. It must have taken quite some bravery to Ella to board a train at Windsor with her grandmother, knowing that the whole journey to northern Scotland would be a concerted effort to get her to give up on her fiancé. But Ella had a plan. She was going to throw a metaphorical dead cat on the table, albeit a true one. She told her grandmother the shocking news that her sister Victoria was planning to marry Prince Louis of Battenberg. He was one of those infamous Battenberg brothers that we talked about in the series on Beatrice. This was shocking and unexpected news for the Queen. However, she didn't object to the match per se, although she was upset at not having been consulted. 
This was good news for Princess Victoria, but terrible for Ella, as it meant that the heat was most decidedly back on her. She had to deal with a fully armed and operational Queen Victoria. By the 1880s, Victoria was very much the woman that history remembers her as. Formidable, clad in black, with experience and wisdom respected and feared by everyone. She imparted all her concerns and counsel on her teenage granddaughter. She warned Ella that Russia was too unstable, that Sergei was not to be trusted, that her mother would not have wanted this for her. Surely she would marry someone more stable, more secure. This pressure was relentless, taking place during drives in the country, walks about the estate, and at mealtimes. Victoria made sure that Ella knew every detail of the troubles in Russia, and the risks that she'd be taking by marrying a Romanov. Ella endured an entire summer of this, and, eventually, she cracked. Shortly after returning to Germany, Ella wrote to Sergei to tell him the wedding was off. Queen Victoria was utterly jubilant, writing, quote, I rejoice that she's acted as she has done about Sergei. Clearly she wasn't subtle about her happiness, as she managed to offend her of daughter-in-law Marie. She wrote to a friend, quote, That happy and so entirely satisfactory prospect of marriage of my brother Serg is going, I think, to follow through, under the deplorable influence of the Queen. The young lady, having just returned from her visit to England, and told by her father that, after her own wish and consent, I was coming over to Darmstadt with my brother, boldly declared that she would have nothing to do with him. I do not blame the poor girl, because I know she was well disposed towards my brother, but I have no words strong enough to blame the Queen. I knew that from the very first she set her heart against it, saying that she only had heard his praise, but he had one of the great misfortunes. He was Russian, and she had enough of one Russian in the family, meaning me, of course. Being forced to backtrack a little, Queen Victoria defended herself, writing, quote, I did not set Ella against Sergei, but I did tell her to reflect well before she accepted him, and remember the climate and the state of the country. I shall never deny having said this. This was little disingenuous, to say the least, but it did appear that Queen Victoria had won this battle. But Romanovs are nothing if not stubborn people, and Sergei was not willing to give up on his bride without a fight. He was determined to win this war. He travelled immediately to Darmstadt and sought an audience with Ella. Queen Victoria's joy quickly turned into worry. Quote, I can't tell you how I dread this marriage for her, she wrote to Ella's sister. Believe me, it would be misery for her. In another letter, one of a flurry that she sent in a few days, she wrote that Ella would be, quote, taken in, for heaven and earth will be moved to get hold of her. Victoria was right to be worried. Sergei was a formidable opponent. As he said to Ella, did he and she not share so many interests in art and culture? Did she not care for him? Was he not a true and noble man? Did they not share a commitment to God and to each other? In the end, it did not take Sergei long to turn that no back into a yes. After having re-accepted Sergei's proposal, 
All that was left for Ella was to bite the bullet and inform her grandmother. Sensibly, she asked her sister to inform her first, so that she could draw Victoria's fire. The Queen, as you might imagine, was very upset, calling Ella, quote, sweet but undecided and inexperienced. She refused Sergei three weeks ago, and now she takes him and forgets all. It will be her ruin. After her sister had laid the groundwork, Ella had to bite the bullet and write to Victoria herself, knowing that this would be one of the most important letters that she would ever write. This is a good long bit that I'm going to quote, and I'll interject where appropriate. Dearest Grandmama, I am afraid this letter will not give you as much pleasure as I should wish, but as it concerns my happiness, and you have always been so kind to me, I wish you to know what I think about Sergei. Those few days I saw him last month have convinced me that I shall be happy with him. We have the same taste for things, and although he may have opinions you do not like, do you not think, dear Grandmama, that I might do him good? Ah, the classic. True that he's no Prince Charming, but there's something in him I simply didn't see. How many relationships have been ruined by that song in Beauty and the Beast? Clearly, Ella is playing on Victoria's faith in her that surely she might be able to mould this Romanov brute into a gentleman. Ella continues, Mama always liked him so, and we both have that great sorrow of losing someone we loved so dearly, and it draws us close together, and we feel for each other more. Now this is a great trump card to play. Alice was the first of Victoria's children to die, and her death cut her to the core, This, after all, is why Victoria was playing such an active interest in the lives of these grandchildren. By linking her loss to Sergei's loss, Ella is hoping to tug at Victoria's heartstrings. Ella finishes off her letter with a plea for forgiveness and understanding. I am afraid you will think me very changeable, but I think I know what I am doing. And if I am unhappy, which I am sure will never be, it will be all my doing as I know. Please forgive me if you are vexed what I shall do, and although I will have to begin a new life, I will always cling to those who have been dearer to me than I can say. That is pretty high-quality stuff there, and you can tell it came straight from the heart. I think it's fair to say that Ella never truly loved Sergei in the modern sense. If she had, she would not have prevaricated so much. True love matches were very rare back then. Ella and Sergei's relationship was based on something else. On mutual affection and respect. On both of them truly caring for the other. I don't think there was ever much passion there. But for a Victorian, that was more than enough. And that's before you consider the advantages of marrying a Romanov. Of the staggering wealth and prestige. Of the potential for a life more luxurious and comfortable than a simple Hessian princess could dream. For Ella, that was more than sufficient. If Victoria had been holding out hope that Ella's father would bail her out and refuse his permission, then she was disappointed. Louis wrote to the Russian Tsar, Sergei's brother, quote, I did not hesitate to give my consent, because I have known Sergei since he was a child. I see his nice, pleasant manners, and I am sure he will make my daughter happy. Of course Sergei has not chosen a brilliant match, 
that he marries a clever, educated lady who will do her best to make his married life pleasant and happy. Now, before you will get angry at Louis, when he says that Sergei hasn't chosen a brilliant match, he wasn't slagging off his daughter there. He merely meant that he was not marrying into a prestigious royal house. It wasn't a slight on her appearance or character. Then again, given that Ella was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, it was still a little uncalled for. In February 1884, Sergei came back to Darmstadt for the public announcement of his engagement to Ella, and he wasn't taking any chances. He didn't bring a treasure chest with him, he brought a whole cartload of them. He had dozens of exquisite Fabergé eggs. He had rare and antique jewels that had been worn by Russian empresses for centuries, and let Ella try each and every one of them on, pinning many of them on himself. The ones she liked, she got to keep. By the end, she was so covered in precious gems that she could barely stand. She glittered in a galaxy of diamonds. She had diadems and traditional kokoschnik headdresses with jewels the size of duck eggs. There were pearls, sapphires, rubies and emeralds on everything from brooches to chokers. She later confessed that, quote, I looked like a Christmas tree. And then there came the piece de resistance. He announced that the Tsar himself had conferred on Ella a vast sum of money of a hundred million rubles from his own fortune that amounts to around 700 million pounds in today's money. When added to her dowry from her father and other money given to her by Sergei, this made her an incredibly rich woman. She wasn't just wealthier than her father. This made the teenage Princess Ella richer than Queen Victoria herself. For a woman who had grown up relatively simply, this was a world that she had never experienced before. It must have been intoxicating. Now that the financials were sorted, there was the small matter of religion. Historically, it had been a requirement for all foreign brides to convert to Russian orthodoxy, but that was no longer the case by the 1880s. Just to be sure, though, Grand Duke Louis insisted on a specific clause that allowed Ella to continue to practice her Lutheran faith, though she would assist Sergei in his public religious duties. Queen Victoria would never approve of the match, but she recognised that she was beaten, and was introduced to Sergei at Ella's sister Victoria's wedding in April 1884. She described her future grandson-in-law as, quote, very tall and gentlemanlike, pale and delicate-looking. It wasn't much of a review, but it was the best that they were going to get from her. Sadly, this wedding, if you recall, was a bit of a disaster, as first Ella's father Prince Louis eloped with his mistress, and then Princess Beatrice went and fell in love with Henry of Battenberg. This rather put a pin in Ella's charm offensive. The rest of Ella's family, though, was far more enthusiastic. Her sister Irene wrote to Queen Victoria, quote, I assure you, the more one sees of him, the nicer one thinks of him. Ella saw Victoria one last time before her wedding at Windsor later that summer. This was at the time when the Queen would only communicate with Princess Beatrice by pushing notes. One imagines that Ella leaving for Russia only increased Victoria's sense of loss. Before she left, though, the Queen gifted her a bracelet, a treasured reminder of home and the family and life she was leaving behind. For now, Ella was bound 
for her new life in Romanov, Russia. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.